Welcome to Practicing Clinicians Exchange Podcast, CHEST Annual Meeting 2021 Conference Coverage. This is one of two podcasts summarizing practice-changing abstracts that were recently presented at the CHEST 2021 Annual Meeting in October. My name is January Jolobui. I'm an advanced practice provider in clinical practice with pulmonary and critical care medicine at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health in Tacoma, Washington, and I'll be your moderator for the podcast. Joining us is Tish Hayes, a pulmonology advanced practice clinician who practices in the Lung Associates of Sarasota in Sarasota, Florida. In this podcast, we'll provide clinical perspective and selected practice-changing abstracts covering a variety of topics from the CHESS 2021 annual meeting. This program is developed in partnership with the Association of Pulmonary Advanced Practice Providers and is supported by educational grants from Italian Pharmaceuticals U.S., Division of Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Milan Specialty LP. This program is provided by Practicing Clinicians Exchange for 0.25 ANCC and AAPA credits, with 0.25 credits applicable for pharmacology credits for NPs. To receive credit for this program, go to pce.is forward slash chest. The learning objectives for today's podcast are to identify recent practice changing data across major pulmonary and critical care conditions, formulate strategies for the management and monitoring of patients with pulmonary conditions based on the most current efficacy and safety evidence. I'm very excited to start our podcast today with a very important topic and chronic cough. I think this medical condition continues to baffle even the best of our pulmonologists out there, as there hasn't been one singular medication identified as effective in dealing with cough. We have learned to broaden our differentials in the hopes of pinning down the exact cost. However, there are instances when we still could not explain the source of cough. So Tish, what have we learned from the recent phase three clinical trials of this new drug called Gifapixent? Thank you, Jill. I agree. Cough can be very difficult for the best of providers and can be extraordinarily frustrating not only for the provider, but for the patients as well. So Definigis and colleagues did a phase three trial on a new medication, uh, a P2X3 receptor antagonist that had been shown to reduce 24-hour cough frequency over 12 to 24-week periods. They were double-blind placebo trials And they looked at patients 18 and older who had refractory or unexplained chronic cough, which again is one of our our difficult areas of cough to manage. It's easy if we can find a cause and it's easily treatable, but unfortunately there's a fair amount of population who we have done everything for and they fit in this category. And we don't unfortunately have a lot of options as far as treatment. Um, They only had a small amount of adverse reactions where it was taste issues. Um, So looking at it and the final data, it appears thus far that there may be another agent, something else in our toolbox that we can utilize to help patients with chronic cough, which unfortunately for them, especially in the current age of COVID, has been life limiting, not because they have COVID, but because if they're hearing and coughing in public, they are less likely to even go out and do things in public. So anything we can add to our toolbox to help give better quality of life and functionality to our patients is definitely an improvement in where we are now. So Tish, how, how important is it that this drug Ifepixent is in the phase three of the clinical trial? It means that we're coming close to being able to use it in actual practice. And it's extraordinarily, again, important because even though chronic cough may not be as significant as another disease process, such as myocardial infarction, which will stop a patient in their tracks now, 
chronic cough has been a significant issue when you look at quality of life factors. They have adjusted their work life, their home life, their family life. They're not out, they're not going around because they have this ongoing chronic cough that has been keeping them slow and not being able to do the things they want. It interferes with so many aspects of their life. It is extraordinarily difficult. So having something to give them back their quality of life is very key. So based on your clinical practice, what percent of patients end up with unexplained cough? And is there any one particular age group among the adult population, whether these are young adults, middle-aged adults versus the elderly, that gets the diagnosis of unexplained cough? Unfortunately, there's more patients that have an unexplained cough than I would like to admit. It's probably a little bit less than one third, but when you look at how debilitating it can be, it does make a difference for those patients. Um, And this is just in my personal practice that I see a fair amount of patients that have this ongoing chronic nagging cough that they say they've done everything for, and we've worked them up and can't find an underlying cause. Yet again, it literally changes their life and their lifestyle and limits what they're able to do. Some of the patients want to stay home because they have urinary incontinence or they don't want to go out to a movie or a show because they're worried that everyone is going to be disturbed by their cough. My practice sees adults 18 and over. I see it more frequently in women. And that just, again, may be my practice. Um, but this is an area that is it's important. And I think more research, and I can't wait to see how the final trials go and to see if we have something else to add in our toolbox for these patients who have had to make significant life changes based on a chronic cough. It's really very interesting as this study specifies the adult population of more than 18 years old, but perhaps down the road when gefapixib becomes a drug available to everybody, it would be nice to see an efficacy study comparing which age groups among the adult population this is most effective. And hence, you know, where is chronic cough most prevalent um, among the age groups? Wow. I agree. Chronic cough is definitely one challenging diagnosis to manage. And this is this new medication, Gifepixent, certainly holds promise in the very near future. So on to our next hot topic. Let's focus on the much talked about COVID-19 infection that has put many scientists and medical experts scrambling to understand the magnitude of this disease process. Some patients, by virtue of their underlying disease process or comorbidities, already have inhaled corticosteroids prescribed to them, whether they have COPD or asthma more commonly. And so the bigger question is, has there been any significant impact on the use of inhaled corticosteroids or ICS prior to being diagnosed with COVID-19? Excellent, Jill. Um, COVID-19, again, is, is such a hot topic. And there were so many talks and conversations that just it, you could have, you could have had an entire conference on this alone. Um, and there's lots of them that are, that are still up for debate. Dom Matsu and colleagues did a retrospective review of hospitalized patients who had come in and were already on an inhaled cortical steroid prior to admission. And they looked at these patients to determine what their survival rate was and how many required intubation. It was interesting that the, even though they had higher comorbidities because they were already on the uh, inhaled cortical steroid prior to admission, that their overall prognosis was not any different significantly. And they had a slower rate of endotracheal intubation, which was very key. Um, I know a lot of us um, have really worked hard not to have these patients intubated. So anything that we can take as far as value Um, anything that makes a difference was huge. There were less intubations. 
their long-term outcomes were not significantly different for those who weren't on an inhaled corticosteroid. So again, it makes us wonder if having an, an inhaled corticosteroid prior to contracting COVID-19 makes a huge difference overall in a large population. Um, they had a study size of about 300 patients. So it's, it's a good beginning. And I think we need to have some more data to find which this helps. Does it help just on the patients who were on inhaled corticosteroids or would it provide data for those patients? Do we need to add an inhaled corticosteroid into a systemic steroid, which most of us are doing? What an interesting study. The two populations involved were those that used ICS and those who didn't. And although there was no difference in in-hospital mortality among both populations, the use of ICS showed really lower rates of endotracheal intubation. Why do you think this is the case? I think this is partly the case um, because of the anti-inflammatory effects of the inhaled corticosteroid, which is why we use them in a lot of these populations anyway. I think it gave them a leg up again, because in theory, they should have had a worse mortality because they already had some underlying comorbidities. So I think it's the anti-inflammatory action that assisted us and had them with a lower intubation rate than those patients. So we know that inhaled corticosteroids are considered anti-inflammatory bronchodilators. As a review, what are some of the more common side effects of using ICS? Dysphonia is a very common side effect um, for those patients with ICS as well as topical candida and um, some contact hypersensitivity. Anybody who's had patients on, on many of these drugs for very long, if, if they, we either forget or the pharmacy forgets to tell them to do an oral rinse, they will call you back and they are very unhappy because they usually have come back with Canada and then we remind them, okay, this is what we have to do. And they start, those are the most common ones. In addition, um, there are some also mixed data on increased risk of pneumonia, cataracts, and uh, changes in interocular pressure, which is important depending on your age population that you're dealing with. So it's not without its own risk as, as everything has its own risk. Um, but those are the most common ones. Well, one thing we are sure of in this day and age of COVID, there's still so much more to research on the effects of ICS to COVID. Although use of ICS is not really a novel treatment medication among the plethora of pulmonary things we can use, it's used an impact in COVID portent promise in the very near future. Since we are on the topic of pulmonary medications, one of the most important, if not overused drugs that a lot of patients have become familiar with is the short-acting beta-2 agonist, such as albuterol. This drug is commonly labeled as the rescue inhaler, prescribed for more common conditions such as asthma and COPD exacerbation. We will next discuss the short-acting beta-2 agonist and how it has caused paradoxical bronchospasm among a special group of patients. Thank you, Joe. Yes, Call and colleagues looked at paradoxical bronchospasm in military veterans with COPD or asthma at, at tertiary medical center. Paradoxical bronchospasm has been noted as rare, and it can occur with short-acting beta agonists. It may not be recognized and it may be underreported. Um, they looked at 1,150 records, which is quite a few, looking to see who had this um, side effect. And there were not many that were recorded. Um, it was found to be a rare side effect. And in conclusion, the thought was it most likely is underrecognized or reported whether it's just a short acting thing and nobody reported it, it's something that I think needs a little more information and data as it's really difficult to find any cohort study reviewing uh, retrospective or otherwise on 
paradoxical bronchospasm. And as we're using these medications so frequently, I think it's important to know the risks of the medications as well. Since this retrospective study investigated patients who underwent spirometry testing pre and post bronchodilator, what is the significance of interpreting forced expiratory volume in one second or FEV1 and forced vital capacity or FVC? This is, again, this is almost like uh, some of the other topics we've had a conversation. Having PFTs and forced expiratory volume and forced vital capacity are, are key to a pulmonary practice. So knowing what the side effects are of even doing the procedure is key. It's really very interesting that this phenomenon was focused on military veterans with COPD or asthma. What do you think are some confounding factors that can affect the occurrence of having paradoxical bronchospasm? I think that's an excellent question. It, it could be easy, easy as sensitivity to the medication and again, I think it was probably under-recognized and under-documented in this patient population. There may be other things that we don't know about the patients. What other exposures did they have? Have they, you know, what was their age range? Was it, you know, just 18 and up? Or was there one particular age range that they found it more popular in and that occurred more? Was it more the 60-year-old patients or the 80-year-old patients? Um, you know, was it more males or females? I think there's some more information that needs to be taken to decide how, um, how best we can use this information and maybe make adjustments in our practice. I agree with you. I think uh, the main takeaway of this abstract is really knowing that it, it can happen. Paradoxical bronchospasm can be a side effect of utilizing short-acting beta agonists. And, you know, we need to be just aware of that and put that at the back burner and make sure it's something we can easily recognize if that happens, especially for testing someone using the spirometry device. Well, we have learned so many things today, ranging from a potential new medication gefapixent and the quest to perhaps pin an answer in the debacle and chronic cough, the impact of using ICS prior to a diagnosis of COVID, and lastly, having the knowledge to recognize that paradoxical bronchospasm can occur with the use of short-acting beta-2 agonists. There's a lot to ponder on and certainly a lot more to look forward to as advances in medicine and science occur. So thank you, Tish, for again, gracing us with your knowledge and expertise today. We thank PCE for giving us this opportunity to talk about relevant topics that impact our day-to-day -day practices clinicians. And lastly, we thank all our listeners who joined us in this never-ending journey of learning and growth. We hope you enjoy the podcast and invite you to listen to our other podcasts covering additional practice-changing abstracts from the CHESS 2021 annual meeting if you have not already done so. Please visit pce.is forward slash CHESS to take the post-test and claim your credit for this activity. <laughs>